Hello, this is Where Did It All Go Right? I'm Ali Jones and uh, this podcast all started really when I realised loads of people I knew had rather fabulous jobs and I thought, how did they get them? Was it luck? Was it being in the right place at the right time? Was it hard work? Was it something else? And I tried to find out what the answers were. We've got loads of past episodes waiting for you to be listened to. You can listen to comedians, presenters, actors and broadcasters, loads more as well. So go listen. So this week, my guest is astronomer, broadcaster, journalist and real tennis player, Chris Lintott. Uh, Chris is based here in Oxford, but is known all around the world for being the presenter of The Sky at Night and just being a brilliant science communicator. So we met in his office here in Oxford. Uh, He was a bit late. His excuse, they just discovered a new planet. I mean, of all the excuses I've ever heard, (laughs) I'll leave him to tell you about that a bit later on. Enjoy. Well, Chris, thank you so much for uh, for letting me talk to you in your office. You said it was messy. I think it's creative. It's definitely messy. <laughs> <laughs> it's about two years overdue a tidy. There's paper everywhere. But um, <laughs> I used to claim I knew where everything was, and that's not true anymore. Well, but it looks like there's a lot of thinking that goes on, which is good. Yeah, that's yeah, the idea. That's the idea. But I wanted to talk to you because in this series we've talked to podcasters, presenters, actors, musicians, all creative jobs. And I really want to talk to you because... You know, from the outset, you might not think that doing what you do is is a creative job, but you've managed to get science and make it creative. Would I be right? I think so. I think it is inherently creative. I mean, science is about ideas uh, and it's about arguing. So the most fun that we have in this building is when something occurs to you and then you can walk down the hall or across the corridor and have a chat with somebody. Not have a fight. No, well, you know, sometimes it gets gets a little uh, heated, But, but it's about convincing yourself and others of an idea that you've had about the universe and that's what I love about it. Mm. it it's that sort of creative inspiration that that drives things a, a lot of the times as well it's about thinking of creative ways to observe the universe so so one of the reasons I like astronomy in particular is that it's a really simple science so we have this great reputation when I tell people I'm an astronomer they say oh you must be very clever well, they ask whether I've seen Brian Cox. But uh, mostly they, they, they say that I should be very clever. And, and, and that's nice. But actually, when you look at the sky, we can't do experiments. Um, it's not like my colleagues over the road who have a laboratory. I can't put a galaxy in a box and prod it. Uh, and so all I can do is observe. And a lot of astronomy is driven by finding new and creative ways to do that very simple thing of just looking at the sky and trying to interpret it. And, and sharing that knowledge creatively as well. Because for me, I remember when I was at school, it was a bit like upstairs, science block, white coats, bit scary, don't want to go there. I think I'll stick with the kind of music and the arts. And there's a bit, there was, well, there was a bit of a division. And I, 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 th- just... I think at school that's still true. Mm. And I don't think it's helped that, I mean, there are some great science teachers, but science at school is often about received wisdom. It's about the right answers being in the back of the book. Whereas in English at school you write an essay or a story, in science you work out that something is 9.81 and then you look at the back to see how, how, how right you are. And that's disappointing. Well, you look at the back first. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I mean, <laughs> no, that's just my children. <laughs> but, but that's exactly right. You get that crushing feeling of being wrong. Actually, as a researcher, being wrong is helpful. Right? So being got to interesting. Get over that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of being wrong. And being interestingly wrong is the best of all, because mm. that tells you that you, there's something you don't know. Mm. Um, to give you an example, not my work, but there's a big um, argument going on across the world between two groups of astronomers who have both tried to just measure how fast the universe is expanding. Because we know that there was a Big Bang, we don't really understand the Big Bang, and the universe has been expanding ever since, and so it's a natural question to say, how fast is that happening? 
And these two groups have spent decades developing two different ways to measure it, and they disagree with each other. And they don't disagree by a lot, but they disagree by enough that we think the disagreement's real. So that tells us there's something about the universe that we don't understand. Yeah. Now, both sides are pretty frustrated. Both sides think the other side are wrong. But as a spectator, that's really exciting because it tells us there's something we're missing. Uh, and that's where progress comes from. Um, I'm interested that when you were at school, you had a telescope at school. That's quite unusual, isn't it? It is unusual. It's how I became an astronomer. Mm. Um, I think one of the moments that made me was in my first year at school, um, I, at secondary school, uh, so state grammar school, um, I joined the astronomy club. I joined the astronomy club because it met on Wednesdays, and if you were in a club, you could skip the lunch line. <laughs> and first years were last on Wednesday, so I had to join a club on Wednesday to get my lunch. Astronomy happened to be then, so that's why I joined. So it was uh, all to do with your stomach. I, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it still dri drives me today. So, so yeah, so having joined the astronomy club, I discovered there was this marvellous observatory which had been built uh, by the local astronomical society. Uh, it had been provided for by um, the head of physics, Graham Veal, uh, and a guy called Ian Walsh, who was the science technician, they'd fundraised for the observatory. They ran teenage discos in the school hall every Friday for three years, and I think they still bore the scars of that <laughs> by the time I got there. But they had done all this work to get this marvellous telescope. It's actually bigger than the one that's on the roof here. That's incredible. So it was a really great facility. And then they handed the keys over. So as a 12-year-old, myself and a bunch of friends, they just said, here's the key, go use it. And that's the moment, being trusted... Mm. Mm. to do that mm. I mean I also found out you could get pizza delivered to the observatory so <laughs> stomach again came in uh, you're getting a good picture of my 12 year old self but that sense of like being trusted to play with a scientific instrument and to do to try and do real science with it yes. really kicked me out of the school the not, uncreative school textbook stuff and not being scared by it exactly yeah. and learning I knew it like the back of my hand and we used to show the public round and so on but, but we knew exactly how to get the telescope to do what we wanted and from there was that something then you thought I always want to do this or yeah. was there any deviation I never thought I'd make it I mean that, yeah, but that clicked that was, that was the point I was going to try and be an astronomer mm. and I was going to follow that uh, as far as I could and, so uh, how did you decide that you were going to make it was it people who, who helped you along the way I don't think I did I mean I remember sitting in the office next door when I got my final permanent job here uh, which is what any academic tries to get to and uh, it was I had to I, I was speechless so, so I don't think I ever did decide I was going to make it but there were people who were important along the way and um, I guess if early on one of them was Patrick Moore, who I ran into, uh, literally, uh, at an um, amateur astronomy meeting in London that I travelled up on the train from Devon. Did you for. nearly fall over in sort of shock and, oh my goodness, Well, exactly, my yeah, no, the first time I, I went to see him I said hello and then I couldn't get another word out. But we exchanged letters and so Patrick would respond to everyone who wrote to him. Mm. I've still got a couple of the postcards. I've got one that just says, it's addressed to Chris Esquire, and on the back it says, Chris, yes, Patrick, P.S. Forgotten Cerno. Uh, but at least it was a reply to the letter. Um, and so Patrick, of course, was a very different kind of astronomer. He would have said that he was a writer and a broadcaster and somebody who communicated. And so obviously very creative as well. And so beginning to work with him was, was inspirational in, mm. in terms of thinking about myself as a science communicator as mm. well as somebody who did science. So you ran into him and it was at the time that you said, oh, can I come and work with you? Or how did you get that well, job we just, at Sky I, Night? I mean, I wrote, I, I wrote Patrick a letter 
that said, Dear Patrick, I ran into you. <laughs> um, I Sorry think about I, the I think I asked a question about Saturn. Uh, no, he's big enough that you can bounce off. It's fine. <laughs> um, and and so so and we just corresponded, and then I started. Right, I was writing articles for astronomy magazines um, to earn a bit of cash, actually, as an alternative to a summer job. Um, why not? Well, exactly. Um, Beats delivering papers at six Well, I, I, I tried um, selling ice cream on Torquay Seafront, and I was really bad at it. Uh, I could never get the Mr. Whippy thing to oh, work. It's re- the Mr. Whippy stuff, it's, re- it's like patting your head and rubbing your stomach. Yes. It's really difficult. I can imagine. So I used to have to give out free flakes to try and get the thing to hold together. So in the evenings, I would go home and write, <laughs> write articles for magazines. And from that, I appeared on the Sky at Night a few times. We did a... The first one was a programme where we said... Um, we're going to cover everything you've ever wanted to know about astronomy. We did why their seasons through to how do we know the universe is expanding. Uh-huh. Um, and I remember that being intensely nerve-wracking. Still in the corner of the old BBC studio. So the, an enormous studio with the Sky at Night set in the corner. And the programme that you've grown up with as well. Yeah, exactly. So I'm here. Exactly. And Patrick's sitting there and it was recorded what back then it wasn't live but it was recorded because it's what Patrick was used to what they call as live so you go through once mm. and then you go back and you fill in if you have to and so there was this pressure to get it all right um, and I was pretty terrible I have since gone back and watched and it was awful but I guess an 18 year old was a novelty and I appeared a few more so times so they asked you back they did so. yeah I think you know, my, I think my favourite of those early ones was a programme about there'd been a total solar eclipse in Africa okay and I now know that a total solar eclipse is the most stunning thing. I've, I've, I've seen one under clear skies. And if anyone, any of your listeners have a chance to go and, and see this, it's the most wonderful thing. Is You've got to be in totality. Okay. Right? So it really, there was one a few years ago which was about 95% mm. from Oxford. It's not the same. You need to see the shadow of the moon rushing towards you. And it's the most incredible thing. But this one was in Africa. And the Sky Knight couldn't afford to go to Africa. So they'd hit on the idea that Patrick and I were going to watch a video of this eclipse which we hadn't seen before, and commentate on it. Okay. Not, not pretending that we were there, but so that they get a reaction. And so they started playing the video, and it had been professionally produced. And so, as well as the eclipse, it showed the landscape, it showed the changes in colour that you get in those last few seconds before totality, but it also mostly showed your standard African animals wandering through the through the uh, savannah uh, waiting for the eclipse as Patrick of course had this marvellous commentary you know as the moon covers the face of the sun the giraffes move stately in a stately fashion towards the trees he was doing his acting you know, exactly yeah 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 exactly and then he suddenly looked at me and said Chris the elephant's not perturbed <laughs> and I still don't know what I'm supposed to say so, so anyway that was my last appearance on the sky at night for a while um, and then just as I was starting as a PhD student um, they needed a researcher somebody to help the producers understand what these astronomers were talking about mm. and so I got to do that um, and it led to being thrown in front of the camera so back again yeah no exactly. eclipses no. no eclipses we did we did do a live eclipse later on uh, and that I made no sense that time either because I was gabbling because it was a beautiful <laughs> beautiful sight but I think because I came in by this strange route right I was a researcher who did a bit of reporting and then did a bit more um, I got to be bad on television, which no one gets to do anymore. If you're a budding science communicator and you get a BBC show, you better be good on yeah, your first well, three so minutes. Now there's social media, so everyone is very good at criticising you because they can't really see you. You've got all that. So I guess that's true. You're a little bit, you know... Was, Protected. Yeah. yeah, there was one man who called the BBC every month um, <laughs> to give me a rating out of five. 
Did you find out what the rating was? Oh yes, no, the BBC pass pass all of this on, helpfully, and there are still people who write in because I mispronounce things. But you you love it, and and I wondered, of all the programmes you've done, is there anything in particular that you've been the most proud of? I think the thing I'm most proud of are the programmes we did about the Rosetta probe. So Rosetta was a European mission to Comet Cherimeov-Gerasimenko, which I use as often as possible, because once you've learned to say Cherimeov-Gerasimenko... But can you spell it? No. no. <laughs> uh, we did used to call it Chewy Gooey for a while, but then it turned out Cherimeov and Gerasimenko were alive, and it seemed somehow disrespectful. <laughs> um, so yes, yeah, so Comet Chewy Gooey, and, and Rosetta was this probe that went into orbit around the comet, and it dropped this little lander called Philae, which was supposed to land using harpoons to attach to the surface. Um, and in fact, the harpoons failed and Philae bounced around on the surface. And for a few days, we didn't know where it was or what was happening. But those programs, because we're in a, we're an astronomy program with scientists involved, and because we're a monthly program, not news, we got to know the team really well. People like Matt Taylor, um, who's the sort of heavy metal British... Um, project manager uh, or, or project scientist uh, on the mission and, and lots of the team from the Open University up the road who built a little chemical laboratory that sat on Philae to sniff the comet and try and work out what it, it, ma- it was made of. We got to know them really well and so it felt like being part of the team and we were able to, I think, tell the story of that exciting adventure as a human story, yeah. right? It's not a lump of metal the size of a washing machine has landed on a comet. It's these people did this thing. Mm. And it, it turned into this great drama because we didn't know whether whether Philae was alive or where it had landed and, and people got very interested. So it's like a yeah, like a drama, like a soap opera, a continuing story. It and did that, feel like that. Yeah, yeah, that's another way, like you're saying the human aspect that you know, science could be quite quite clinical, couldn't it? But you know, you're creating a, a world for people to really get involved in. Yeah, I think one thing everything I do it's important to me that in everything I do, we talk about science as it happens. I think it's very easy to wait until we have a result and we understand something, and then you get the clever bloke standing on a stage going, let me tell you what I've discovered, and that's fine, but it's not the interesting bit. Mm. The interesting bit is when we don't know what's going on, where things fail or, 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 or struggle, and I think we should talk about that more. I was just, uh, um, I went to visit the European Space Agency. They, their main um, technical headquarters is in on the coast in, in Holland, just outside Amsterdam. Um, and I was there a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about all the possible missions that people want to launch and build. And, that, and at the minute people are competing with each other to try and be the mission that's selected, which will become a reality. Yeah. And all of that is hidden. I think from the public so people get the impression that we all sit around and then eventually somebody says should we send a spacecraft to a comet yeah thank god somebody's had an idea and of course it's the opposite we've got too many ideas and with a little bit more money we could do more stuff so I I want to make that more visible sure Um, have a sort of x-factor competition we should do I, for... I think they should do that why not why not let the public vote yeah. um there don't are do some... it eurovision style though because it could go wrong well we'll have a jury and <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, let's not do it nationally right no. all of these things are best done internationally yeah but you're right well. we don't understand what's going on behind the scenes we don't hear about it no we? you wait and then it's oh that thing's just done this thing yes. you, you don't realize there's yeah. been this build-up no, and this really excitement yeah, and I wanted to ask you about um, Galaxy Zoo and mm. all these crowdfunding projects because crowdsourcing, crowdsourcing. Yeah. Sorry, um, is that something? Do you think that your profile helped to start with? 
I'm not sure it did. So, so I guess. And, I and what is it? Yeah, yes. I should explain. Galaxy Zoo was uh, a solution to an everyday problem, which is that we were sitting here and we had too many galaxies. So do? I know. I mean, I, some of your listeners may experience this themselves. <laughs> so no, but it, the way astronomy has changed, even in in my career, I one used to apply to telescopes. And then you got awarded four nights and you trot off to somewhere awful like Hawaii or the Canary Islands or something. And you get your four nights and if it was cloudy, tough. And if it was clear, you used the telescope. And that, that was your data for the year. That's dreadful. Yeah. If it's well, cloudy. Yes, I once went all the way to Hawaii and had to spend a week on the beach because it had snowed on the mountain. Oh, that's quite tough. It was, it was all, I was miserable, I can tell you. <laughs> the grumpy astronomers stomping <laughs> along this <laughs> tropical beach. Anyway, we do do a bit of that now, but mostly we build survey telescopes. So, for example, um, I was using data from a, a telescope in New Mexico that for eight years just let the sky turn over it, and it just took pictures of everything that crossed its camera. Uh, and amongst those probably few hundred million objects, there are a million galaxies. And if you a galaxy is sort of a, a, an island universe, a system of a few hundred billion stars, like the Milky Way, mm. And if you want to understand how a galaxy has lived, you need to look at its shape. Because the shape of a galaxy tells you whether it's collided with other galaxies, it tells you about uh, whether it's interacted with its surroundings and so on. Um, about when we had a few thousand galaxies with good pictures, you know, professors could look at a few thousand pictures, maybe a PhD student. <laughs> uh, but this telescope in New Mexico provided us with a million images. So you feel like you're a little bit out of your depth, there's we've, too well, much. We've just got a student to look through. <laughs> A student's name was Kevin, Kevin Schwinski, and Kevin looked at 50,000 galaxies. And the first result of Kevin's thesis was that that's enough. (laughs) Uh, So he didn't want to look at... I took him to the Royal Oak down the road, but he still wasn't (laughs) going to be persuaded to look at 950,000 more galaxies. And so without really thinking too much about it, we put it up on a website, Galaxy Zoo, and asked the public to help. And I think maybe my profile helped a bit. We we did get the BBC to write about us, but that was... You know, I think it was a good story anyway. Um, And the next day, we were doing 70,000 classifications an hour. So more work than Kevin had achieved every hour from the public. And the public turned out to be really good at this. So he was crying in his pint. I think he was just really happy he didn't have to look at the other (laughs) 950,000. But that's what a brilliant idea. Yeah. I I mean, it it, it it wasn't the first such project. Um, A group of NASA scientists that had people looking at um, dust that they brought back from a comet... And these pictures were sort of grainy and fuzzy and the dust grains were tiny. And I thought, if people will look at those, they'll look at galaxies. Yeah. And what became immediately apparent were that there were a couple of things that we hadn't anticipated. Not only were people really keen to do this, not just people who were already interested in astronomy, but almost everyone's had a go at galaxies. It takes a couple of minutes, you can contribute to some science. Um, but we discovered that people could be surprised. So we, I, I, I've had fun, and my team and those I work with have had fun following up on all sorts of weird and wonderful things in the last 10 years. But also, we started getting phone calls from other scientists who had millions of images of penguins, or uh, a ton of looking at cell nuclei, or a digitised archive of ancient papyri or, 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 or a network of cameras on the Serengeti or, or whatever else and all of these people have the same problem that getting data has become relatively easy analysing it is still very hard sure. and so we built this platform called the Zooniverse that allows people to recruit the public 
to help with this sort of problem. And it must be so satisfying that you're getting so many people involved in science that maybe would wanted to, but were a little bit, you know, they had no way of getting involved. Yeah. And, and I'm sure you get a lot of correspondence. Yeah, 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 we do. And I think what, what what's interesting is that we're trying to break down that thing of I was never any good at science at school. So lots of these people um, don't have science degrees. Um, they may not even be sort of science fans. They probably don't read Sky at Night magazine, more's the pity. Uh, they probably don't, you know, catch up on the Sky at Night. But they've stumbled across the website. And then suddenly, once you realise you've made a contribution, mm. Mm. or better, when you think you found something unusual, we've had people send an email that says, look, I don't know what's happened to me. Yesterday I didn't care. And now I need to know about the details of galaxy spectra because I think <laughs> I found this thing. And so the projects inspire people to think of science as something that they can be part of and to go and find find out more. Yeah. So and and this is something that you said it's been going for ten years. Is this something? Twelve years now. 12? Yeah. So you're just going to keep going. Well, it's a really interesting time to be talking actually because yeah. we made the biggest change in twelve years on Tuesday to the website. So um, I have a student, Mike Wormsley, who is an expert in machine learning in artificial intelligence, and he's built us a well, let's call it a robot, it's a, a set of software, but a robot that can also classify galaxies. And so if you go to Galaxy Zoo now, the machines are doing most of the work, but they're asking, we've built a machine that can ask for help. So every day, the machine tells us which galaxies it thinks people, it will be most helpful if people have a look at. And yeah. so we hope that with that, we can speed the whole process up. Um, that's necessary because we're about to get better at getting data. So I'm involved in a project called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which is a terrible name. But it's, it's in Chile. It's as big as the biggest telescopes that exist today, but it's going to scan the whole sky every three nights. So you can think of it as instead of getting a still photo, we'll get a movie of the sky. Um, and the only problem is that that's going to give us about 30 terabytes of images a day. You're going to give yourself far too much work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a, a nice way to think about it is we're going to have an alert stream that tells us an, a direct uh, message from the telescope whenever anything in the sky changes. But we think we're going to get 10 million alerts a night. <laughs> so we're going to need help to filter through. And, and this combination of volunteers and experts and computers will, will I think, get yeah. us there. So it's really exciting. It's just become making it much more democratic, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, really I mean, I, I think that sense that anyone can see anything and that people have access to the images at the same time we do. Mm, mm. Um, I think there's a nice, it's nothing to do with my work, but uh, increasingly missions around the solar system are sharing data. So um, when the Mars rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, these little robot geologists that were crawling around the Martian surface for most of a decade, uh, when they were still working, the images that they sent back just appeared on a public website. So you or I could have got access to them at the same time as the people who built the spacecraft that went to Mars. And there's a community of graphic designers, of artists, uh, of programmers, of Photoshop wizards who came together and a lot of the publicity shots that you see for those missions were put together by these volunteers who know how to make something look good and can yeah. fiddle with the colours and have time to play with the images and to make discoveries that way. It's just so, making it so much fun, isn't it? I think well. so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or sharing the fun we'd be having anyway with, <laughs> with everyone. And, and make it clear you don't need to have been good at science at school. That's the point. Yeah. There, there really is... Uh, modern science is something that everyone can take part in. And that's a little bit like your ethos when you wrote those books, because you wrote some books, didn't you, with Patrick Moore and, and Brian, Brian May. May. Yes. I, I have this image of like Brian in the corner on his guitar, 
Patrick maybe looking out the window, you on the computer. Did you write them together? Or we did did, you... Well, it's an interesting story. So, so Patrick and Brian know, knew each other, have known each other for years. Actually, since Brian, who of course um, got distracted from his astronomical career yeah. by his musical <laughs> passion, by doing Wem- filling Wembley. For That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, but he 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 knew Patrick because he fancied buying a telescope. So he called Patrick Moore and said, "What telescope should I buy?" And, and so Patrick had the idea for particularly the first book, Bang, which was um, an attempt to write a history of the universe in order. So starting with the Big Bang, finishing with... Uh, the spoiler is that it ends badly okay. in about 100 billion years' time. <laughs> and, and so to give the sense of this arc of history, I, I think it's a good it was a good idea. Um, and Patrick asked Brian and I to help, and both of us said that we'd love to, but we didn't have time. And a week later, we got an 80,000-word draft from Patrick. And very little of that survives, because what we did was we used to gather at Patrick's house for the weekend and go through the draft sentence by sentence uh, and unpick it. It's an awful way to write, while well, a publisher tore his hair out in the corner. But, and particularly if you didn't have much time and already 80,000 words uh, Exactly, but, but pa- Patrick just um, blackmailed us, because he just kept saying, well, we could publish my version. But, <laughs> it, was, but it was really interesting, because Patrick, of course, knew how to write. I knew what was happening and the, and the new stuff. Mm. Um, particularly in the early universe, where 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 the, some of the ideas are a bit scary, and Brian is a master of detail. So it was always Brian who'd say, "Actually, have we got that right? That doesn't quite make any sense." And, and I think that's from his creative side, right? That's all the years in a recording yes. studio. Um, but it Listening, meant, almost. yeah, that's right, and 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 being curious and and being not quite an outsider, but but somebody who'd left astronomy behind uh, a little while before. And so we wrote the book literally sentence by sentence with the three of us. And then Patrick's cat would go missing or something exciting would happen in the cricket and, and the publishers would lose another couple of, couple of strands of hair. And Brian had a gig to do. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it was great fun. And having, having just... I've just finished um, my first book with my, just on my own, mm. my, which is about the Zooniverse, which comes out in October... And that was much harder without two other people picking it through sentence sure. by sentence. But on the other hand, you could just do your own thing. Sometimes it's, it's great, like you having the support collaborating, yeah. but sometimes when you're on your own, you're like, oh no, what do I do next? Yeah, I think that, that's true. And, and writing, a book, writing that book was, I think, the hardest thing I've ever done because I tried to find a, a story and a set of stories that, that would be interesting and engaging and, and, and which I'd be happy to read. I'm quite pleased with it in the end, but that was, that was tough. But you wrote, didn't you? When you were at school, you wrote... Uh, I wrote... Uh, science Yeah, as well. that's right. So it's right. obviously something that you've, you've loved doing and getting stuff published must be really satisfying. It is fun. I'm looking forward to seeing my book. I haven't seen a copy of it yet. But <laughs> Do you get to choose the cover? We've negotiated over the cover. Okay. It's nice. I'm, I'm pleased. I know all my team here immediately pointed out that I can't be properly famous because my name is smaller than the title. Uh, that's the that's, that's the metric. That's, oh, that's tough. That <laughs> but but yeah, no, I think I I think by writing, I've always thought by writing and speaking, and I, I that that fits very well. I think with with being a scientist, we are communicators. We argue with each other. We debate um, using words on paper and and in person. Um, and so I see it as the same sort of skill. Sure. Um, but it's quite fun to, to write for an audience that's larger than those that will read. My, I'm pretty sure some of my PhD papers would be read by no one but me. <laughs> um, Don't think so, like that. Yeah. <laughs> but well. you, you won an award as well, didn't you? Is it 2014 um, for 
it, it was the creativity itself, wasn't oh, it? Oh, that's right. Yes. No, this is well, it's nice of you to mention. That's it. all right. But yeah, the, the American Astronomical Society um, engaging non-scientists. So it, people have realised what you're doing is, and it, it's really important. Do you think it's the key to uh, engaging people is to just sort of tell them away a bit, a little bit, so that it's just a bit more, it's just more out there, and it's it's just easier to understand. I I think. I'm not sure it's about making it easier to understand, though. I hope people do understand. Um, I think people are, are tolerant of things they don't understand. I think it's more about creating a place and a way of talking where it's okay to not understand, and that, that that's the exciting bit. You'll have heard of Brian Cox, who's yes. a particle physicist, you know, has some <laughs> other side career. Um, but he is, and I'm, I, I know Brian, and he's, he, we get on well, and he's on this tour. He sold out Wembley Arena uh, for the largest ever audience for a science show. But it's very interesting. I, I, I've been to his shows, I've been on stage with him in his shows, and you stand by the exit, and people come out, and you hear over and over again the same conversation. Did you enjoy that? Yes, that was wonderful. My mind's blown. That was amazing. Did you understand it? No, not really. <laughs> uh, and I think that's fine. And I think what Brian's trying to do is to make people feel excited and to stretch them. But there's definitely a sense there, I think, where people are being left to not understand because the clever people over here are doing that. Mm. And maybe that's aspirational, but it also creates this gap. I don't want to do that. Mm. Mm. I want people to come to my lecture to go, did you enjoy that? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, but did you understand it? Yes, I, I felt like I followed it. And I think if we can give people that sense that they can understand, then they can go and read up on whatever they want yeah. and they can go and go go and explore science for themselves. And, and you must find it really satisfying when you get students who come in fresh-faced and then years later they're running projects and they're arguing with you and oh they, they argue with me from the beginning oh, right? that's that's, to be clear no 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 that's what we've employed them to do right <laughs> that's that's the best thing a lot of my work is done with PhD students in particular um, and that's just the best thing because they're cleverer than I am um, they have more interesting ideas than I am and all I get to do is have a little bit of a voice of experience to say actually I think that's a really good idea follow that mm -hmm. and, and, and so that and, and it's great fun to see where they go mm. um, so that is satisfying um, it's nice to have I remember Becky Smethurst who's now uh, actually back here as a research fellow but was my first PhD student and is now a YouTube star Dr Becky is her channel uh, but <laughs> you know she always argued with me but that feeling when she finished her thesis and, and was examined was so much more rewarding than my own. Mm, really? Like, yeah, just watching somebody who I'd helped get through that was, was amazing. That's brilliant, though, um, isn't it? Yeah, when, and, and that's, you know, just, just one of so many people that come through here and then go all over the world. And Not we, just in astronomy, either. So most, yeah. most of our students go off and eventually do things that aren't astronomy. So they end up as data scientists or lecturers or communicators or, or as all sorts of things. So it's, you know they are astronomers for a bit and hopefully they carry that carry that with them but it's not that they're all becoming fussy academics somewhere <laughs> we were talking so we talked about you know being at school and the big telescope i mean that was obviously a massive turning point for you and getting on the sky at night writing those books are there any other moments that you just thought that's made a real difference to to where i am now and where i'm going to go as well i think there were a few i mean i think I did not have an easy undergraduate life. I wasn't very good at physics. My first year I did well in everything except physics, and then said I wanted to do more physics. Uh, second year I wasn't very well. 
um, and third year was a slight disaster. So oh, I remember, well, I was distracted. <laughs> I did a lot of other things. But I did a lot of theatre. Uh, as an undergraduate. And, and, oh, that's really uh, interesting, you know. though. That there's that creative side yeah, trying to get out. Yeah, yeah, so was there a time when you're thinking, I might just jack this in? Well, I just assumed that at some point I w- they were going to find me out and that I wouldn't be able... So not so much Jackie, I wasn't going to... They were going to have to push me out. Delight. But I did assume that would happen and I never had a sensible plan B. But there was a point... So my fourth year course just took off and it was all the stuff I wanted to learn. It was the detailed astrophysics. We did quantum information. We did all of this stuff. And I remember sitting in the first of the first set of exams in that fourth year... And I could do it because I cared about it. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I found that I could remember all of this stuff. And and that, I think, if one moment, if you're asking about turning points, <laughs> like, I remember coming out of that exam going, it's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be okay. But isn't that interesting that often with anything that you're learning, if you're not interested in it, you can't be, well, not everybody, but it's, 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 it's difficult, very difficult to get into it, isn't it? That's You've right. got to yeah. find something that really excites you. Or a route into it that excites you. I, yeah. I, I think that's right. I, it's very hard. And when when people come here and think about doing a PhD, the first group, I, I'll give away, I run the PhD emissions now here, having failed to get into Oxford myself. How ironic. Um, well, you know, <laughs> um, the first question we ask everybody in the interview is why do you want? To, why on earth do you want to spend three years doing a PhD in astronomy? And I bet you get some good answers. We get some great answers, but we also get people who just say, "Oh, I haven't really thought about it." You know, or it's the next thing, and that's not a good answer because you need <laughs> to be passionate to, to to power through. So, so whatever people are doing, I think that's right. You have to find something that makes it exciting to you. So it was that fourth year, that moment when you thought, "I can do it." So that was a massive turning point. Yeah, and that got me into the into the PhD, yes. uh, which was at University College London. I worked on astrochemistry, which was very exciting, and got distracted by all sorts of other things again. Uh, but that that was fun. I, I, I being a PhD student, I worked with all sorts of people. Um, I produced. Uh, a lot of science, most of which I now know is wrong. Uh, I was sitting in a lecture last summer, and the lecturer casually mentioned something that meant that the major plank of my PhD is wrong, which they found out five years later. So, you know, it's not my fault, but yeah, that's my legacy down the drain. But as you said earlier, it's okay to be wrong. It's very okay to be wrong. Thank goodness you've got that mindset, because you've got to have that, because otherwise you'd be just crying. Well, I think if, (laughs) as a scientist, if you don't think you're wrong a lot, then you're in trouble. Because that's how you end up with, you know, I've had an idea this morning that will completely overturn Einstein and quantum physics and all the rest of it. And I get letters from those people who are amateur scientists who are interested in everything, who think they found a way to make the universe simple and to make it work. But they're often missing that self-doubt, right, that makes you go back and treble check and to do the research and all the rest of it. So, so doubt is essential, and negative results are good, mm. right? If we find out how the universe doesn't work, that's useful too. Mm. Um, on our project, one of our citizen science projects is a hunt for planets. We think we've got some exciting results that I was scrambling about to try and follow up this morning. But um, everyone who takes part in that project does so because they want to help find a planet. But you have to remember, every time you look at some data and say, there's definitely no planet here, that's just as useful as whoever gets lucky and says <laughs> there's definitely something here. And you can't tell us any more about that. Is that top secret? Well, I can tell you that we think we found a planet which goes around its star once every 85 days. Um, it's about seven times the size of Earth. But it may not be real. So we have to chase it down. So you have to argue a lot about it. Argue about it, get more data. Yeah. Go and apply to use telescopes. Uh, and then we'll see where we are. So 
pivotal moments as well is not just ha meeting people and, and doing certain things, but it's having that mindset as well, isn't it, as a scientist, as you're saying, of, of being open to ideas and, and, and be prepared to be wrong. Yes, I think that's right. Maybe the creative bit, because we were talking about creativity, is about which idea to follow. There's a moment, I remember in my career, where I went from, oh my God, how on earth am I going to find anything to work on, to, I've got 17 ideas. <laughs> And, and the create, almost the creative bit is, all right, which of those do I think I should attack now? Mm. Given what we know about the universe, given what data sets we've got, which of these should I follow? Mm. Um, and, and that's often a gut instinct. or. A, and having people you work with, good mentors, has that been a big part oh, Yes, of that's, that's always helped. I've been, yeah. I've been lucky to work with all sorts of people. I mean, science is collaborative, at least the way I do it. And so everything I've done has been in a group of a, a small band mm, mm. Um, working together. So that's mm. been very helpful. Mm. So what do, you want, what's, do you want to be able to be in, say, 10 years? I think the thing that's driving me is this LSST project, this big telescope that's going to tell us 10 million things have changed in the sky last night. Um, in 10 years' time, that will still be running. Um, we're a couple of years away from the start of the survey right now. We've been preparing for it for about 15 years. Um, the thing I want to have achieved is that we find unusual stuff. Because I think we've got a good handle on how to find the things that we expect. So if you want to find more supernovae, more exploding stars, somebody in the world has already written the computer program that will find those things, and find lots of them. Maybe not all of them, but lots of them. I want to be surprised. I want to find the star that's not behaving like any other, or the flash of light that we didn't expect in the sky, or the category of object that we just didn't think was there. That's the challenge. So I hope in 10 years' time we'll be overwhelmed with the unusual and the unexpected. Yeah. And the odds are good. Every time astronomers have found a new way of looking at the sky, we found new things. Mm. Think in this department, we've got Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who's an enormous hero who discovered pulsars while she was a PhD student. That was enabled by the fact that we'd started listening to the sky with radio telescopes for the first time, and she saw these flashing signals. Um, so I hope we can do it, but that will require creativity, it will require some volunteers, it will require the Zooniverse, it's going to require uh, an awful lot of work. So mm. that, that's, that's the aim as and, well. And also getting that knowledge, but sharing it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. We're only going to be able to do this with enough. If thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people get involved in sorting through uh, what's going to be the most marvelous data, and some of it will be pretty. There will be beautiful images of galaxies, but most of it's going to look like blobs. <laughs> so you have to trust that you're exploring the universe through blobology. And I think if we can get everyone doing that. That will work really well. Yeah, and I saw on your Twitter feed the other day that you that being somewhere where you were talking about new routes into space. Yes, it's a bit right. like new routes on the underground, well, but, uh, but slightly a bit more complicated. It's a little bit like that. Yeah. Yes, I've just come back from, we've been filming for Sky at Night at a, a, the European Lunar Science Conference, which was in Manchester. And, and the moon is really exciting right now, partly because it's just come in reach of commercial companies. So people like Elon Musk, who has SpaceX. Yeah. And there's an Israeli company that nearly got a lander to the surface. It just crashed at the last moment. Um, so NASA, rather than building spacecraft itself to go to the moon, is, has commissioned a fleet of robotic spacecraft to try and get to the lunar surface, particularly the South Pole, where we've never been it's 50 years since Apollo. But the astronauts all landed on the side of the moon that faces the Earth. They all landed in the, around the equator because that's where it was easy to get to. Mm. And that's a bit like exploring the Earth only by landing in the Sahara. <laughs> right. right. So you conclude it's hot and dry... 
uh, and you've missed a lot of the variety. And we've done more or less the same in the moon. So, so NASA's sending these little probes back to the, the South Pole in particular, um, where there are all sorts of things. There are craters that never see sun and mountains that never see shade. Um, and scientists are very excited about building instruments to go on those those landers and find a cheap way to get their experiments up to the moon. Um, there's also a lot of talk about crew, about people. I think that's a little less plausible, um, at least for anyone who so is a you're Chinese. not putting your hand to the ring just yet. Oh, I'd go. Of course I'd go. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But but as, as yet, no politicians explain that they want to pay for it. So even Trump, who's announced that people will be back on the moon by 2024 coincidentally mm-hmm. you know there, there's no sense that the american government wants to pay the kind of money that, that i think that's going to take but the robotic exploration is is really exciting yeah so if anyone's listening to this and they think i just really want to do what chris is doing and I, but i want to do it in a creative way and i want to maybe be on the telly doing it or writing books about it is there a set route to it or you've just You've got to bump into people at events. I, I, I've just meandered around. I think. Um, I, 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 I think. Like that. I, I do. Ha- yeah, I have a couple of. I mean, I think there are a couple of, of pieces of advice. So you can take part in the science by going to Zooniverse. But in terms of the communication, the web and social media exist in a way it didn't when I was growing up. Mm. Just about, and so I think you can put yourself out there. You can talk on YouTube about space. You can be active on Twitter or Instagram or, or whatever. And, and there are there's a lot of space for new voices. I think, for people being excited uh, about what's going on and, and giving people a perspective. So I think the first thing I'd say is try and do something, podcast perhaps, um, and, and, and find an audience that way. I think, it, you know... I, Just I, get, get stuff out there. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be an enormous audience. I will go and talk to a group, a local astronomical society or something, and there'll be 50 people in the audience, and I think that's great. So if your podcast has 50 mm-hmm. listeners and it's you and your friends, then that, I think that, that, that's brilliant. And that leads to other things. Um, my, I also live by Hlozek's law, so Renee Hlozek was a PhD student here, we're friends, she's now a professor in Toronto, uh, I need to translate this slightly for a podcast, but uh, <laughs> Renee's rule is, you should either, I'm gonna, the polite version is that you should either definitely say yes, or say absolutely not. So I, you, so Don't sit so, on the fence. No, no, if somebody offers you the chance to do something, if you say, oh I'd love to do that, you should do it. And if you don't feel like that, say no and keep your time in the, in the things that, you, that you're yes. really excited about. And I think that's good advice. Use your time really wisely and just make it matter. I think experiment, mm. but experiment with stuff you enjoy doing. I think that's the idea. I like, I like the fact that you gave us the clean version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a shorter, slightly punchier version that, 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 that I'll spare you. It's a podcast, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but on the other hand, I think I, I prefer that version. Yeah. Well, listen, it's been really interesting talking to you about I mean, there's been so many different facets to your career so far, and, and more, I'm sure. But you've got planets to find. You've got planets to find. You've yes. got millions of people in your Zooniverse who will want to talk to you, I'm sure. So, Chris, thank you so much for talking to me. It's today. my pleasure. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you for listening and hopefully subscribing and rating. You know, I never rate stuff. I can't be bothered. But it is really important. If you can rate us, particularly on iTunes, that would be amazing. Uh, We've got a brand new episode. It's going to land next week on Podbean, iTunes and Spotify. And thanks to Megan, who is enduring, no, sorry, enjoying last minute bridesmaid fittings at the moment. And uh, in between those, she produced the podcast this week. We'll see you next time.